Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. On today's episode of The Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with author and philosopher Morris Berman. I'm Seth Moserkatz. And I'm Justin Ritchie. And today with Morris Berman, we're going to be talking about how our system of materialism grew out of a specific set of beliefs in the Enlightenment and how those have resulted in our current economic system and challenges of ecological devastation. And we're also going to be covering some of the themes in Morris Berman's new book, Spinning Straw into Gold. After we wrap up with Morris, we're going to hear a short selection of a talk by Rupert Sheldrake in Vancouver, British Columbia, earlier in July of 2013, about the core dogmas of the scientific materialist worldview and how there are some challenges to them that really show the distinction between science as a method and science as a belief system. Be sure to send this episode to everyone you know that loves Oprah. See you at the end. In the 70s, mid-70s, late 70s, I was writing a book called The Reenchantment of the World, a one bestseller. <laughs> and uh, when it was published in 1981, there was at that time, frankly, a lot more sympathy for a holistic understanding. Uh, things have shut down really since then. But I, I mean, I don't think it became a bestseller because it was particularly talented. It hit the market at the right time where basically there were a lot of people in the United States and Canada that were, and Europe, that were preoccupied with um, the notion that the scientific paradigm of the modern era had sort of run its course and that we had to look at holistic models that didn't see things in mechanical and fragmented terms. And the really radical center of that book, the core that I think pushed it into the public eye was I argued that pre-scientific modes of thought, including astrology, witchcraft, alchemy, and so on, actually described the world as it was at that time, no less than the scientific worldview describes our world today. And therefore, that one could not claim epistemological superiority for the scientific worldview. That was kind of shocking. I mean, that was really radical that, you know, the notion that one could have um, a pre-scientific worldview, a magical worldview, and that it was actually accurate for, th for the world in which people were living. It, it actually did describe the world. So it got a lot of play as a result. 
Some of the more interesting things I thought about at that time and occasionally I think about today are the relations between our present mode of thinking and that mode of thinking. I was staying with my friends here in Vancouver and I was working this morning on my book on Japan and it's sort of like I have to tear my hair out of my head because Japan is so holistic a culture that you do the usual thing when I write a book. I have piles of papers on the floor and literally go through the piles you know, until I have a book and that's the end of it and I throw the piles away. But the problem with writing about Japan is that the piles begin to run together. <laughs> and you just have to pick a cookie and take a bite and then see what happens because it can't be described in a linear way. And this is a very interesting thing. So you're talking about, I don't know, Zen meditation or craftsmanship and pottery or whatever. And then you're also talking about philosophy. And then you're also talking about a way of life in contemporary Japan and so on. And so they just all run together and it's hard to separate them out. And the pre-scientific worldview was a lot like that where things didn't fall into the compartments that we create in, in terms of like economics for example as being separate from uh, art they're not you know but we like to think of them in different categories yeah. i also like to think of the whole possibility of testing that pre-modern worldview i remember years ago the sociologist max marwick British sociologist wrote an article about what had happened to him when he moved to some African country. Now, I can't remember what it was, but he was there to, to study the natives. And it turned out that shortly after he moved there, he had owls settling in the attic of his house. And they would screech all night long so that he couldn't sleep. And the British or American or Canadian solution is to call the owl exterminator and kill all the owls. And then it'll be quiet. But he decided, I'm going to try something else. I'm going to go to the local witch doctor. Marwick went off to the local witch doctor, and the witch doctor said, prior to leaving England, now here's a good example of holistic thing I'm talking about. Witch doctor said, prior to leaving England, did you have any conflicts with anybody in your family? Now, you know, you go to the guy and say, owls are keeping me up all night, and he's saying, do you have any family conflicts, you know, back home? This is something that would not occur to a contemporary Western scientist. So Marwick said, well, as a matter of fact, I had a kind of blow up with my uncle and I have felt bad about it. And so the witch doctor said, if you write your uncle and patch things up, the owls will leave. Again, what the causal connections are is not, <laughs> not clear. But the thing that really disappointed me about Marwick and his essay was he didn't follow up on it. And it's interesting to ask why. Because I don't know if I were in that situation, I think I would just write my uncle and say, I feel bad about what happened. I'm wondering if, you know, we could talk about it and so on, straighten things out. And then just see as an experiment why in the world the owls would then leave. What's the reasoning process behind this? And just to take a guess, I don't think he even did this in the article, but just to take a guess, I would say it's something like this. He was carrying some sort of unhappy energy. And basically these birds sensed it. And in some way they were attracted to it or trying to uh, influence him in some sort of way. Once that bad energy would have left, they would have had no reason to stay. In. It would have to be some sort of reasoning like this. But it's a type of causality that the modern scientific outlook has no truck with. I mean, it has no way of relating to that. Now, staying on that same vein, do you think that maybe deep down he was terrified 
of the possibility that that could have been the case, that if he had followed up and seen uh, and rectified issues with his family, that if the owls then left him alone, then that meant there was this whole aspect to reality that was outside what he could view. I think he would have had to go to bed for about a month to recover from that. And so, yes, that was my interpretation, that he was scared that the witch doctor could be correct. And if the witch doctor was correct, there's nothing within his own training in British universities that would enable him to make sense of this at all. The same thing occurred, I mean, you know, these books have been lambasted as being untrue, but actually they're partially true. The series by Carlos Castaneda that started off uh, The Teachings of Don Juan, where he supposedly went to a Yaqui uh, shaman, and the first exercise that the Yaqui shaman gave him was to sleep in this room on the floor overnight and to find, he said to him, there will be one spot that will be very negative for you and you have to stay away from and one spot that will be very positive for you and you want to find it and sleep on it now within the framework not only of newtonian science but even euclidean science space is space you know a box is just a box and that's what he was talking about it's not like one part of the box is privileged and another part of the, you know i mean that that from a scientific viewpoint, it's totally ridiculous. Except that when you think about it a little more closely, restaurant reviews will talk about the ambiance of the restaurant. I, I felt it was friendly here, you know. And I've had the same experience with writing in cafes. I can walk in in 30 seconds. I can tell you whether I could sit and write here or not. I can't tell you why. And maybe there's a lot of wood, a lot of glass, whatever it is. But there's something about the feel of a place that we all instinctively know is true. And yet Euclidean and Newtonian science says it's just coordinates. In any case, the next morning, Don Juan showed up at the cabin and Carlos was asleep on one particular spot in the cabin or whatever it was. And Don Juan said, oh, I'm glad you found it. <laughs> now, he might have said that about any spot he was sleeping on. But the, the, the whole notion was that as Carlos went through this training, again, there's a whole question of how real it was and so on. Um, but the first two books, I think, were actually not of a Yaqui shaman living in Mexico, but a particular guy who was in a shamanic tradition that was living on the outskirts of Los Angeles, where uh, Carlos was living. And, and so he got the training from this particular guy. But the whole notion was that as in taking acid or something like this, there was a derangement of cognitive abilities or way of, way of thinking. Whether you're talking about owls in an attic being related to the fact that you had a fight with your uncle several thousand miles away or that there's a positive spot on the floor, that doesn't fit in with a Western mode of perception. And so in both cases, there was, with Marwick, I think you're right, he was unwilling to write his uncle because what if the witch doctor had been correct? He would then be faced with the fact that everything he learned at Cambridge or whatever it was, was off in some profound way. And that there was a deeper reality that he was missing which is what, in the Castaneda series of the books, Don Juan was always telling Carlos, there's a deeper reality here that you're not grasping. And um, so then, you know, in this, as the books go along, uh, Carlos is pushed to the brink 
of insanity. And that's the great fear. Myself, for example, I have heard of people doing experiments with psychokinesis, where by concentrating on an object, you can move it across a table. So I'm looking right now at a can of something here on your table, and if somebody could come in and concentrate on it, and actually get it to slide across the table, I can explain it by saying that matter and energy are interchangeable. Einstein showed that. And that there are people that perhaps through a certain type of yogic or whatever training can develop a mental capacity to concentrate their energy such that it can move matter. After all, the, the object, if we, if we believe, you don't even need quantum mechanics, just atomic physics says that most of that is insubstantial. It consists of space. And so it's, it's an electromagnetic field. And so isn't it possible that individuals could develop an electromagnetic field to affect other electromagnetic fields. I can go through a whole intellectualization of that. But I know that if somebody walked in right now and did that, I would have to go to bed for a week just to recover from <laughs> what I saw. You know, <laughs> you know uh, that, that's, that's the type of thing uh, that we're engaged in. With regard to the issue that I raised of epistemological superiority, here's how I would modify it. I mean, I did make that argument in the book that science had no epistemological superiority, but here's how I would modify it. I would have to say, for example, and I did talk about this in the book as well, that if you read Aristotle on projectile motion, because of the idea of kinetic and potential that Aristotle talks about, theoretically, he says, an arrow has to move as follows. It, it is released from the bow. It goes up into the air, but the, he didn't use the word momentum, but the energy that it carries then dissipates. At the point that it dissipates to zero, it then has no other way of moving except to fall to earth. So that the trajectory in Aristotelian physics of an arrow is that it has a discontinuity, a peak. It goes up in the air like this, and it comes down like this. In other words, at a right angle. Now, one wonders what Aristotle thought he was looking at, because all you have to do is watch arrows flying around, and they don't behave that way. And so, around 1600, uh, Galileo said, you know what? Aristotle was full of hot prunes. In fact, an arrow describes a parabola, which it does. How is it we didn't know that before? But then comes the question, if you're really saying there's no epistemological superiority, then you're in a tr you're, you've painted yourself in the corner because what you're really saying is that from Aristotle's time, around 300 BC, until something like 1600 AD, for 1900 years, arrows went up into the air and then came straight down. And but then the arrows said, gee, Galileo just got born. We better clean up our act. And all of a sudden, they started describing parabolas. Now, I, you know, I'll believe that when pigs fly. There is no way I'm ever going to believe such a thing. And in fact, as far as I'm concerned, Galileo was right and Aristotle was wrong. And that's just the way it is. So, there is an epistemological superiority involved in that scientific perception. However, there's a little coda, I would add, that's kind of interesting. The idea that things, for example, accelerate as they fall to Earth. Aristotle said that was because the entire world was alive, which it was for the Greeks, and it was for pre-moderns. With Galileo comes a world in which everything is dead. But nature was alive for those folks, and so... Aristotle didn't use the word gravity, of course, but he did use the Greek word that meant appetite, that things have appetite. 
And so the reason that, that it, uh, something accelerated as it fell to the ground was that it knew it was conscious. It was sentient. It knew it was getting closer to home, so it got excited. So it was moving faster as it got home, you see. So one can say, well, we know all that's nonsense now. The only thing is that Aristotle posited a world that was alive, and we posit a world that's dead. And what it means, if you posit a world that's is that it's just there to be raped for its resources. That's the logical conclusion of the capitalism that arose concomitant with the scientific revolution. We have run to the end of that model of a dead earth. It's why you have folks that emerged like James Lovelock with the guy hypothesis said the world is alive. I'm not sure it's literally alive, but I know this. If you treat it as though it were alive, you're in a much better position than if you treat it as though it were dead because we have come to the end of this and we're just dangling over an abyss now. So in the literal sense, Aristotle uh, was wrong and science has an epistemological superiority. But in the larger sense, uh, one might be forced to say that actually the scientific worldview is inferior to the magical worldview or even the Aristotelian worldview because at least they weren't committing suicide. So it's a very interesting sort of discussion of comparing those worldviews. I'm very, very sorry that Marwick didn't, didn't have the cojones to write his uncle, straighten it out, and see what would happen with the owls because I think his creative output would have expanded dramatically if he hadn't gone psychotic. His, his creative output may, may have increased, but his academic credentials may have uh, decreased <laughs> as well. Science has really helped us to define our spectrum of vision in, in so that we, we know that we only see a very, very small, small aspect of the world itself. There's so many waveforms of light and uh, different kinds of uh, movements in, in the, just the way that light moves that we can only and we can only perceive a very, very small, small spectrum of that light. Um, so that's what science has helped us to kind of put into perspective. And then when you when you take the the view that that the the Japanese culture was was talking, you were talking about the Japanese culture has the this kind of gray area, this this kind of organic merging between different kind of um, different kind of areas of 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 interest in science. How how all these kind of interrelate and kind of merge together, and they kind of um, cross boundaries that we don't even know are there so much. It's it's taking this black and white perspective that science so often gives us this dead black and white, this is right, this is wrong kind of perspective, and kind of turns it on its uh, turns it on its head. What I'm wondering is what happens as we, as Japan um, has in its past, it takes in some of this black and white kind of thinking. And in your talk at UBC uh, the other day, you talked about how it, at times Japan has opened up and let in this westernized culture, this other kinds of thinking, brought in this culture kind of and then closed again and merged it, its culture into this gray area of thinking. I'm wondering what it's like as this paradigm shift kind of happens between the black and white and the gray and how they merge together. Yeah, that's a very good question. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. I remember when I got to Japan, I contacted somebody who's now really a good friend. He's a friend of a friend of mine, and he uh, 
lived in London for 20 years, so he was bilingual, and he helped me with interviews and other things in Japan. He was really great. And, um, you know, I'd written him about Japanese consciousness in the wake of Westernization, and he said, quite frankly, I struggle with that schizophrenia almost every day, and I think most Japanese do, that they have a legacy in their genes of an older tradition, but have been pulled into the modern world since the Meiji Restoration of an accelerated Westernization. And uh, in a sense, I mean, what I felt, given the fact that the Japanese had to modernize and industrialize in the space of something like one generation, whereas England had more than 100 years, really 200, to do the same thing, that you're going to get a country that's quite neurotic as a result. And that's what I found. And so... You know, it becomes a question of how they are going to deal with this. One of the analogies, I mean, in the course of writing this book on Japan, one of the analogies I've drawn on is a marvelous novel. It's about 10 years old now, something like that. A marvelous novel by Ursula Le Guin, a science fiction writer who is the daughter of one of America's great anthropologists, Alfred Kroeber. And as a result, her science fiction is really social commentary. It's not really science fiction. And about 10 years ago, she wrote a book called The Telling, in which there's been a corporate invasion of one planet that's a corporate planet has invaded another planet and has squelched and suppressed, destroyed, repressed, rooted out all traces of traditional learning, alchemy, astrology, all the things I was just talking about, witchcraft and so on, and has attempted to crush them out of existence. And the story is that of somebody who comes from this planet, Terra, that is going to go to this other planet and see what the status of the telling is, of that lore, of that uh, body of learning. And she does find it still existing in an underground form. And it's, I, I thought, a really brilliant novel. It certainly describes Japan in a very um, allegorical way. I mentioned in my lecture about Japan a couple of days ago, three days ago, that, you know, when the Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise film, was screened in Japan in 2003. There was this huge outpouring saying, this is really us. We're not Mitsubishi and Sony and all that sort of stuff. That was just a, a coat of armor we put on. But this is the real Japan. This is this samurai tradition, this Zen tradition. This is who we really are. And that uh, was very telling, to say the least, in terms of this repressed consciousness which had become a dual or schizophrenic. You know, just yesterday, I got together with this young Chinese woman who's very interesting. She told me that she had crossed into Tibet on two occasions. And in on one occasion, she went to a monastery and was out in front with the abbot and or was talking to him about the underground tradition. I mean, the, the Tibetan meditation and so on. And he said, it's not safe to talk here. The Chinese have spies everywhere. And so he took her up to a balcony, you know, outside the monastery, and he felt safer to talk there. And he said, well, the Chinese have done their best to root out traditional Tibetan medicine and sciences and uh, the whole worldview that we held. They don't want it passed on to the next generation. Basically, they want us all to become Chinese. And she said she felt really sad about what she heard. There is something really brittle, I think, and neurotic 
about the modern world, about the scientific worldview, about the industrial world. Because basically, if you're secure in what you're doing, you don't have to try to snuff out uh, anything that is different from you and also run around say, saying how great you are. It's like in the first 10 years of the 21st century in the United States, historians were publishing one after another blockbuster on the founding fathers. You know, they weren't doing that in the 1980s. All of a sudden, you know, it's the 600-page book on Franklin and then on Adams and one after another. And I just took these as iconic of a country that was falling apart and had nowhere to go. And so what it was doing was sort of celebrating its founding. And this was symbolic of the fact that it had no future. So it was resurrecting the past and the, you know, the only way it knew how with this kind of, you know, heroic view of the founding. Let's not mention the fact that when Thomas Jefferson died, he had 150 slaves and he didn't free them. His kids inherited those slaves as property. So we'll not talk, let's not talk about that. And, you know, there, there are good things to talk about, about the founding fathers, obviously. But if you're painting these hagiographies, you know, you're creating these hagiographies of the founding fathers, it's, a, it's, to me, it's an indication of your own weakness and your own brittleness. And I would say the same is true of the Chinese in Tibet, that on some level they feel really threatened. And that's why you crush that native tradition out of existence. And that certainly emerges as a theme in Ursula Le Guin's novel as well. So the interesting thing about this complete revolution from that medieval worldview into the scientific worldview is what grew out of it was this idea of industrial capitalism, what later became industrial capitalism. And that economic system grew out of that scientific understanding of world as machine, world to be exploited as resources that fueled this continual notion of human progress towards greater material achievement. And so the last major time that faltered in recent history in the late 19th century, early 20th century, one of the interesting things about the uh, cult traditions and the alternative traditions at that time was in the years leading up to the Great Depression and right around that time period, there was a tremendous emergence of alternative spirituality of, you know, uh, whether it's seances or the Madame Blavatsky uh, the Rudolf Steiners of the world. Yes. Right, yeah, they were all uh, creating what has now become some of the spiritual foundations of like New Age uh, philosophies. And I'm wondering uh, twofold, what will those uh, spiritual alternative movements look like as we go through this next round of economic difficulty that by many indications for many of the economists we've spoken to on our show could be quite a bit worse than the Great Depression. And then also... Um, if you could talk and, and speak to that whole relationship of how the economy grew out of that, that revolution and mindset of that scientific worldview that, that resulted. You know, I did a doctorate in the history of science, and I remember one of the books that I read during that time, one of the great historians of science was a Frenchman by the name of Alexander Coiré. Uh, Coiré wrote a book, the title of which is very telling, I think, From Closed World to Infinite Universe. And the infinite universe was not merely that the cosmos was infinite, but at the same time, at the same time that that was going on, the idea of profit arose, capitalist profit, which had no end. 
So it was in the economic and social world as well, from closed world to infinite universe. They paralleled each other. And the notion that that finally devolved, you know, as decades wore on, centuries wore on, was that what we're supposed to be doing is expanding our economy indefinitely. The problem with that is that as you know many people including myself have observed is that we're living in a world of finite resources if we had you know six or seven earths to play around with it might not be a bad thing we could just keep doing the infinite game but we don't and in any event we would run out of those six or seven planets eventually anyway you know and who's to say finally uh despite the brilliance of astrophysics what the cosmos actually consists of. You know, we've changed our minds about that several times uh, from Einstein and Hubble and, and so on and so forth. We've changed our minds about that. I mean, we even went through a period where it was that if when you got to the end of the cosmos and you stuck your, it was like a Mobius strip or there's a bottle that's referred to, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, you stick your hand out, it comes back in on itself. So we've gone through that as well, you know. I would not be surprised if uh, given the fact that the economy is now uh, starting to collapse, that cosmologists would decide that we were in fact living in a collapsing universe. You know, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like these things socially, uh, scientifically ref may reflect what's going on socially, which raises the question of how objective that astrophysics really is. But I mean, that's one, one aspect of it that Quare's title is really perfect, uh, but it describes uh, the social and economic world as well, and, and that if the universe uh, had no end, why should the economic world have an end? What was really what began to dawn in uh, the early modern period in Europe. Um, and then, of course, it got canonized in writers like uh, Ricardo or Smith. The other thing, what was the other thing you were so, uh, That spiritual tradition um, that came from the last major crisis of capitalism, a uh, large systemic crisis that in the years leading up to the world wars and the Great Depression, as the economic system shifted of, of one that didn't have the, in, the high energy yield inputs of oil and was a capitalism that was moving into our modern industrial capitalist system, there was this strong occult tradition that grew out of it. Right. And um, I was wondering if you could reflect on that and then maybe speculate a little bit on what could emerge from this round of, of a crisis of capitalism. You know, that, that period is really interesting. Um, there was the founding in England of the Society for Psychical Research. There was lots of uh, seances and table wrapping and all that sort of thing. Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists. One of the things I liked about that book I just referred to, The Telling by Ursula Le Guin, is she says, you know, a lot of the alternative tradition was baloney. <laughs> and we have to keep that in mind. You know, it's not like you can set up a dichotomy that says science evil and magic good. Uh, it's a lot, a lot more complicated than that. And one thing you can be sure of when you have the magical tradition and uh, occult revival and so on is, that 90% of the people that will talk this way are going to be snake oil salesmen. You can bet on it. Um, there's a buck to be made here. And also they're charismatic and they want to be leaders and they want... So they, they you know, the garbage rides to the surface, so to speak. And um, you, can, you can be sure that that will be a, an important part of any kind of magical level, which is a shame because there is at the same time, if 90% 
are snake oil salesmen, there probably is a 10% core of something that's really important that we need to pay attention to. And so then the question becomes, uh, you know, how do you sort out the Yuri Gellers from the folks that are really serious about a, a different understanding of reality, such as the curandero that Max Marwick went to, who probably wisely told him, write your uncle and see what happens, you know. I mean, there's always an Oprah out there to do a new age trip and tell you that it's all in the mind uh, and, and that the mind is, is that which shapes reality. I'm publishing a book called um, Spinning Straw into Gold, and I call it my anti-Oprah book, you know, because basically uh, it's a book of spiritual guidance, but it's just the opposite of what she would tell you. So you're not giving everybody a, a car, a new car. No, they're not. Yeah, it won't help you. It won't help you commercially as well. As a matter of fact, it may make your life financially much worse. So you know, before you buy it, think twice. But the thing that um, that she wants to peddle, and that uh, what was called mind thought uh, in the early 20th century in the United States and then got accelerated with Norman Vincent Peale, you know, power, positive, that your mind creates reality, uh, that consciousness makes existence. Of course, tell that to some black woman in the ghetto with two kids and no money. You know, I mean, the notion that if she just sits around and thinks the right way, her life is going to be changed. I consider that pretty much an insult to somebody who is born with cystic fibrosis or whatever they brought it on themselves by the wrong way of thinking I and mean, that's the whole thrust of of that type of uh, you know new age not not to mention all the people who live in slums so you live in the favelas on the edge of sao paulo but that's because you're not thinking properly and if you did you know um, i mean how is it that oprah is going to give the commencement address at harvard it show, shows you how how far harvard has fallen you know but it's just one corporation and another corporation harvard corporation and oprah corporation that's what it's but you know i mean how is it that we don't just arrest this woman as opposed to making her into a national icon you know so spinning straw into gold is very much the opposite sort of thing in other words what i assume is that for the most part not entirely but for the most part it's existence that determines consciousness not that consciousness determines existence and so your reality will be shaped, your worldview will be shaped by the things that are actually happening. What's coming down in the United States is that one out of every five people doesn't have a job and won't get one for 10 years. And sitting around thinking positively on how you're going to get a job by, you know, being upbeat in an interview, it's not going to make any difference. You know, you, you have to have a spiritual philosophy that actually is real. And that's what I'm, you know, getting at in this book. Along those lines, I would recommend the book Bright Sided by Barbara Ehrenreich, who basically takes on that whole New Age Oprah worldview and shows how destructive, first of all, how stupid it is, but also how destructive it is to believe such a, a you know, a, a way of thinking.
the very idea of giving away a whole car to somebody. I just think that's just one of the most incredible moments ever. Cue the drum roll. All right, open your boxes. Open your boxes. One, two, three. Sales of new cars in recession-hit Europe fell to their lowest in 17 years last year. That leaves the region's mass-market manufacturers with little room for manoeuvre as they try to cut costly excess production capacity. At the same time, profits are under threat from the aggressive discounting needed to get potential buyers into showrooms. A 16.3% drop in December pulled 2012's year-on-year -year sales down by more than 8%, a fifth year of contraction. The likes of Bentley, Rolls-Royce, Mercedes, BMW, Jaguar and Porsche reported higher sales and expect that to continue this year, particularly in the US, where at a revitalized Detroit motor show, this industry watcher said... Psychologists say that um, your house is who you are and your car is who you want the world to think you are. And I think that when you buy a luxury car, you're making a statement about yourself. Luxury brands haven't suffered the same tough times as their more common car-making cousins. They're also speeding ahead in what is now the world's biggest car market, China. Basically, the message of The Secret is the message that I've been trying to share with the world on my show for the past 21 years. The message is that you're really responsible for your life. You are responsible for your life. So you're not surprised at the success of The Secret? I am, I'm thrilled for the, the success of The Secret. I think that uh, the message needs to go further, but it is very true that the way you think creates reality for yourself. There are other factors going on, so it's not everything, but you really can change your own reality based on the way that you think. Yeah, I was uh, laid off about two months ago, just before Christmas. I own two houses, and right now I have one rented and the other one is empty. So me being without a job is like, how am I going to do? How am I going to come up with the next monthly payment for that house? So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of scary. But uh, I believe we have to keep optimistic about the economy. That's the, other, the only way that we all can recuperate from this, because if we keep being uh, pessimistic, things are going to be worse. Hi everybody. Over the past few months I've laid out a series of common sense ideas to reignite the true engine of our economic growth. A rising, thriving middle class. More than anything, the American people make me optimistic about where we're headed as a nation, especially after all we've been through during the past several years. So in a lot of sectors things are looking up. The American auto industry is thriving, American energy is booming, and American ingenuity in our high-tech sector has the potential to change the way we do almost everything. And that should encourage us all to work even harder on the issues that matter to you. In blue-collar South Dallas this week, hundreds of people stood in line just to get into a job fair. And you got a lot of employers online that actually advertising job on your platform, you know, they're still not calling. Robert Brown came here hoping to land a job as a truck driver. But after seeing the crowd, he understood the odds. Probably slim to none. It's been two months now and nothing. I'm not confident about the job market or the economy. If it's ever going to get better, I don't think it'll be anytime soon. I am very, very optimistic that the dollar is going to collapse. That is the optimism in me. I'm Jimmy McMillan of the Rent Too Damn My Party. I'm on Extra Environmentalist.
these are troubled times that we're living through right now. And straight talk about these troubled times can definitely be hard for people to understand, can definitely be tough for people to live through. And to hear advice about the hard times can make people upset. At the same time, hard times do give people a chance to reinvent themselves, give people a chance to change directions a lot of times, to reinvent their worldview. Are these hard times a chance for humans to take a different a different path to you know realize that they're against the whole rock in a hard place and change their direction? Well, that's why I said that my own view is something like it's existence that determines consciousness. Uh, if you're out of a job, and you're going to be for 10 years, you're going to start to think differently about your life. In terms of not the individual, but the whole culture, if basically we run out of resources, we're going to start thinking very differently about from closed world to infinite universe. We're going to have a very different view of that. And it didn't come from some yogic or mental process. That came from the fact that the material conditions of life made it impossible to continue doing what we were doing. And so guess what? We changed our mind about what was real. What a shock. So this is one thing I'm really getting at. And straight talk for troubled times means that if you want your life to be a success, number one, you need to redefine the word success. Because it may not be owning a Hummer and having a house that has 50,000 square feet. That may not be success. In fact, I regard somebody like Bill Gates as a colossal human failure and, and a sad person, really. So the first thing is to think about what, what really success finally means. And secondly, if you live within the attributes of reality, then what is possible? These are, are very important questions, and they cannot be solved by an Oprah-ish kind of po the power of positive thinking. Secret. Yeah, that, that type of thing. I remember I did a novel um, about three years ago called Destiny. And it was the subject, the theme of the novel is whether people can change their fate as an act of will. And in one of the vignettes in the novel, the, there's a, a character who's a high school teacher who accidentally writes a book that becomes a bestseller. And he is finally able to quit his job as a high school teacher, thank God, and move to a small town in England and just watch time go by and enjoy himself. But he's pulled back to the United States by his agent because Oprah wants him on the show. And so he goes on the Oprah show, you know. And, you know, I mean, she comes out with her usual nonsense and he tries to say, well, no, that's not what I meant in the book at all. And then he tries to educate her in terms of what real spirituality is. And he said, to her at one point, you know what Adlai Stevenson said about Norman Vincent Peale versus St. Paul? And Oprah says in the novel, Oprah says, no, no, I, I don't know. And the, the guy who's being interviewed says, um, Stevenson said, I find Paul appealing and Peale appalling. And so this, the, the whole idea of the power of positive thinking is appalling. And the uh, spirituality of somebody like St. Paul is of a whole different order of your relationship to reality. You're in the finest sense of what Christianity really is. And one of the challenges of the American character is that it is so deeply embedded in that power of positive thinking mentality that in every indicator of decline, the U.S. has really been in decline and stagnant in terms of quality of life since the 70s. 
you know, the fact that the U.S. economy is is in terrible shape is not a new thing. It's been going on since the 70s and 80s and 90s, and due to you know uh, the magic, uh, the magical steps of finance, it's looked like we had this massive housing bubble that uh, came along and delivered wealth to people, and dot com bubbles, and uh, you know the Federal Reserve has centered its economic policy on how fast can we inflate the next bubble in order to deliver phantom wealth to the uh, to the smallest number of people uh, as possible. And so really this whole uh, collapse that uh, we're experiencing in, in the U.S. and that uh, European countries are experiencing is really just mass rapid impoverishment into conditions that many in the world are quite familiar with. It's just so psychologically difficult to understand because we can go out and spend a dollar at a corner store and you know receive goods that come from all around the world that people in Argentina or Chile or you know in the slums in India can't even imagine the kind of wealth that even just a dollar of US currency can deliver but because we've become so conditioned to receiving that it just seems like normal and so there's a huge psychological shock in the impoverishment how do you think people can actually manage that because there's so many people who are increasingly feeling it as they're kicked out of the formal economy and there's so many people that are seeing it having to their family and friends as they lose a job and can't gain employment. This is where that whole Oprah-ish philosophy works against them because the message is uh, you brought it on yourself and it fits very well with the notion of extreme individualism that the United States pursues. Janice Peck wrote a book called The Age of Oprah which is a good study of Oprah and the program and her ideology and shows how she really became a rising star during the Reagan era and that that was no accident because what she is peddling is precisely this type of uh, individualism where you're responsible for yourself. Meanwhile, where would she be without affirmative action? Where would Oprah have been without Rosa Parks? without the whole civil rights movement. I mean, she talks as if she didn't exist in an historical context. Did she think her way to $2.5 billion? I have a feeling not. But this is so pervasive in the United States that the folks that are now on breadlines and the middle class that's now on breadlines and soup kitchens, living in tent cities, thrown out of their homes that are foreclosed on, one thing after another, one tragedy that has befallen them, what they say is, I brought this on myself. I'm responsible. They Americans don't think in socialist terms. They don't think in terms of community terms or of supporting each other or of having a society which provides support. That Not at all. It's all Clint Eastwood and Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's all about Dodge City and how, uh, you know, a real man is a self-made man, even though, in fact... More than 95% of the American population dies in the same class into which they were born. And the number of people in the dot-com business who get accidentally wealthy uh, are really highly exceptional. Most people, most wealth in, in America is inherited wealth. So they will blame themselves, and that's the dark side of the whole New Age Oprah-ish world, that you see yourself as a failure Whereas the truth is, it's the failure of a whole way of life. It's a whole failure of a whole way of society, uh, you know, society's way of being in the world. And it's the failure of a worldview 
that says success is about wealth. I start out this book, Spinning Straw into Gold, with an epigraph from John Ruskin, one of my heroes, who wrote, there is no wealth but life. I mean, that's the true wealth. I mean, I agree, everybody's got to pay the rent and everybody's got to buy groceries and all that sort of stuff. But all the studies that have been made of happiness since 1945 to the present have indicated that once you've got the basics covered, having lots more money does not translate into lots more happiness, just the reverse. And so what Oprah is teaching people, I mean, her brand of spiritual, that's, that's what she's teaching people. The more, you know, the, bump, the bumper sticker is no joke. The one who dies with the most toys wins. That's what Americans believe. And that's what I think has to change before uh, America can, can be considered at all successful. But uh, there's certainly not fun times ahead as a result. I'm wondering, how do we begin this process of redefining what happiness is in our lives? And is it a self-evident process is it that it can only happen when the current model of our happiness, like right now, no longer is possible? Will this shift of what makes us happy, what makes us content, what makes us satisfied happen organically? And can we jumpstart this process in some way, maybe by watching a, a video or, or reading a book? You'd like to think so. I mean, I would like, I would to, like think to think so. <laughs> but the record is that Americans in particular are spiritually stupid, more than any other country in the world. The European nations, many of them have very large green parties that elect people to parliament and have clout. We don't have a single green party candidate in Congress, and we never will. Well, I can't say never, but it's going to take a long time. The real problem is that for Americans to get off the whole American dream thing. It's not going to consist of reading any of my books, which they don't anyway, or seeing videos or whatever. It's when there's no other choice available that uh, they might awaken to a different reality. But somebody asked me this after the lecture I gave on Japan three days ago about, is it is it possible to get a jump on this change? Because Europe has done it. I mean, there are very various pockets in Europe that really are talking about this in advance, even before austerity hit, uh, you know, cultivating this and voting in the green parties and so on. Um, but I said, you know, as far as the United States goes, it's not like it will even change its mind about the American dream and all that implies if it's on the edge of the abyss. It actually has to be in the abyss. And then alternatives begin to to uh, seem attractive. So I think this is going to be really a very long and painful process, and Buddhist economics will only have an, an attractive aspect when there really is no other choice except to practice Buddhist economics. As we see that moment of cultural death ahead of us and, and realize those limitations that even prevent the U.S. character to begin re preparing for it in any kind of mass level. We were talking about how 90% of all the, the spirituality that is out there, the new age stuff, really is just bullshit. You know, there's so much junk in the world that I see people get deluded on and trapped. But there is some of that true stuff out there that really does have value. How do you achieve any sort of spiritual awareness without falling into those new age traps? One thing is to avoid anybody who's on television. If they're on television, they're full of crap. This is very clear. 
So any any kind of spirituality that shows up in talent television. Furthermore, any spiritual leader who is well known, with the exception of Gandhi, is probably full of baloney. Um, there is something about getting focused on and getting popular that robs you. And so, you know, finally, there, I mean, there's lots of literature that one can read. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the people that you want to follow or emulate are not making a big deal out of it. They're just going about doing the thing. What's that line from Lao Tzu? The one who speaks does not know, and the one who knows does not speak. That's, that's really what you want to put your attention. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with what people are saying or with what I'm saying right now. It's finding models that are simply living out uh, that reality, just living it out. So in Bill Rees' talk in the Economy Summit, he talked about the fact that we've passed through the Enlightenment and now we're moving into an endarkenment. And we're currently in an endarkenment right now. So after we move through this endarkenment, where do you see humanity moving to next? Is humanity going to be able to make it through this endarkenment and move on to another level of, uh, of existence? Can we make it to the next re-enlightenment? Will that be something that we're going to see in the future? Do you have any thoughts about wh- where we're going to be after we make it through this or if we're going to make it through this? I don't think the United States will make it through it, to be honest. Canada has to decide to what extent it wants to follow the American model. Uh, so does Mexico, for example, where I live. And uh, signs are not encouraging. Um, Mexico largely thinks that, uh, well, the elites certainly think that the model is the United States. But one major example of an empire falling apart is that of Rome. And the revival of Europe did not take place in Italy. It took place in northern areas of Europe in the 11th century. That was the so-called urban revival, and it was the precursor to the Renaissance. But it didn't occur in Rome. I mean, it occurred in in areas hundreds of miles from Rome. And I think that we can say that if there's going to be light at the end of this tunnel, this endarkenment, it's not going to show up on American soil. Americans are just too embedded in the American dream and the whole foolishness of a way of life that has proven to be self-destructive and very unhealthy. But they're not going to change this. I mean, their preoccupation will be something like, well, will Hillary be nominated in 2016? That's where their attention is. It's on stuff that's so trivial and so meaningless in the, in the whole scheme of things. Europe has a lot more hope. I mean, even Spain now, this is last August, I was reading in the newspapers that Spain has 325 alternative experiments with currency and energy and decentralization, localization, ways of living that are exploratory of a different pattern. Uh, Joel Magnuson, a friend of mine who just wrote a book called The Approaching Great Transformation, does talk about American experiments um, that are alternatives. But it's quite interesting. I mean, I would recommend that book to anybody um, that as he traveled around the United States and explored these various things, a lot of them turned out to be green baloney. In other words, they just talked a green holistic line, but there was a language so that they could expand profits. It wasn't about uh, a steady state, no profit 
a no-growth economy, not at all. Um, he did find some, uh, and he talks about those experiments in the book, but, you know, most have followed the Ben and Jerry's model of uh, we'll be hip and we'll get rich. You know, it's very hard for Americans not to think in those terms. Uh, I always got a kick out of the fact that when Zen came to the United States, it very quickly became competitive. You know, my guru is better than your guru. That's all Americans know how to do. And so the chances of enlightenment on this soil after the endarkenment, uh, I think, are very small. But I have some hopes for Europe, and there are maybe, you know, who knows what will happen in Mexico or Latin America, but we'll just have to see where real alternatives, real light uh, starts, starts to emerge. Now, in speaking of the endarkenment, I was just reading today about one of the most uh, uh, heavily afflicted countries with austerity in Greece, and uh, a Greek newspaper was writing about how a thousand electricity connections are cut every day in Greece as uh, public power customers can no longer pay their bills. And so Greece literally has to disconnect them. And so there's this cultural endarkenment, but there's literally a, 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 a yeah, physical endarkenment, a, a breakdown of our technological systems, people being disconnected from the grid. And what we've been doing for the last few decades is making it easier and easier for people to have personal computing devices and distractions and noise pollution around them at all times. And so most people are so heavily embedded in a context of noise and distraction that they aren't even able to connect with anything that is not noise and distraction. That they literally, I see people who are so uh, engineered to respond to stimuli that they literally just can't focus. They are jumping around from moment to moment, whether it's a lady sitting on a plane with a cell phone just tapping at it or uh, just people on the street who every single time their phone gets a buzz from a Facebook post from a friend, they're checking it and, and reading it. And so what it looks increasingly like through this endarkenment is that people are going to have to learn to deal with silence. Uh, in some way. And that can probably be very disconcerting and troublesome at first. I don't know how it'll manifest. But I w was wondering if you could speak to that whole disconnection uh, that people are going to experience from their technological devices or from the technological paradigm. And also if you could speak to what you've learned uh, in silence and how silence can be useful. Poor silence is probably the most important element of creativity. When I moved down to Mexico in 2006, it took me a year to detox, you know, just to get out of that corporate consumer wraparound culture that I had been living in. It was such a relief. I had no television. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have a fax machine. I mean, I just, just to slow down. And then, then, within the space of four years, almost effortlessly, I wrote four books. It's not bad. And this book that I mentioned, Spinning Straw into Gold, I wrote it in 24 hours. I had never done that before in my life. And there's something about solitude, just plain quiet, that is probably the most nourishing thing, you know, outside of protein, that you, <laughs> that you can get in your life. And the importance of that. North America is probably now one of the most uncreative cultures in the world because of multitasking, cell phones, noise, and stuff that's just keeping people busy all the time so that basically they can avoid depression and a nervous breakdown, so that they can not feel alone, 
so that they can feel important. You know, I'm in a cafe talking to people. Gee, I must be popular. You know, I mean, this is pathetic. It's just pathetic. Barry Stengart wrote a book called Super Sad True Love Story, I think it was the title, in which takes place in New York about 20 or 30 years from now, in which the system does break down, as you were reading in Greece. It does, it does break down, literally, physically, so people's cell phones don't work anymore, and they, they don't have recourse to all this stuff. And basically, you know, the, the volume of nervous breakdowns and depression is enormous because people don't know what to do with themselves. Um, we, have, we do have an alternative tradition in the West, after all. I talked in the Twilight of American Culture about a monastic tradition and the need to return to some aspect of that where you stop being busy. It's kind of ironic. I stopped being busy, and in four years I wrote four books. That's an interesting kind of non-busyness. But the truth is that it was non-busy. Uh, it, it didn't have this pressured, ha hectic aspect to it. It was just effortless because once that enormous kind of pressure was removed, then real creativity, I think, starts to emerge. And uh, frankly, I would encourage anybody listening to this program to try it. Do you have a regular meditation practice? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've meditated for years. It goes back quite a ways, and uh, I tried different things along the way. In the 70s, uh, I was living in San Francisco, and um, I meditated at the San Francisco Zen Center, and I went on to do Vipassana. And after, as the years passed, I felt that emptiness meditation, which is what that is, had served its purpose for me and that it was leaving me vaguely depressed. And I switched to a, a more active kind of chanting meditation or a mantra uh, meditation, which is called bliss meditation as opposed to emptiness meditation. And I still do that every morning. I feel like I need to do it a lot more. I think I would benefit from doing it a lot more. I still feel my life is too hectic and it's too crowded with um, errands and tons of stuff that I seem to always have to do that it's, gets in the way of my work. But, you know, I, I think that an awful lot of spinning straw into gold, which is what I argue is what we were put on this earth to do, consists of getting your priorities straight. And one of the things that the modern person is confused about is that smartphones and screens are their priorities. These are your enemies. These will not help you be creative. And at the end of your life, you can say, yes, I made 80 billion cell phone calls. You know, I mean, would that be a way to, you know, finally snuff out and say, hooray for me? You know, I had the most hip iPhone or smartphone on the block. That's, a, that's an awful lot of an awful lot of people. That's all they'll be able to say on the day they die. Uh, that, that's a pretty pathetic scenario, it seems to me. Do you have any campaigns you're working on? Any short-term or yes, long-term goals? Definitely dedicated to one particular political project, and that is I want the United States Mint to place Kim Kardashian, a photograph of Kim Kardashian's rear end on the dollar bill, the U.S. dollar bill. The campaign is called Move Over George. Because <laughs> Washington is not an inspiring site, really. I mean, you know, he's got a funny hat and all, whatever. Um, but, you know, Kim's rear end, I mean, that, that could get a lot of people moving. And so I would like in the center of the dollar bill, 
uh, Kim's rear end. And of course, on the flip side, you have that pyramid with the Rosicrucian eye at the top and stuff like that. We can keep that. That's kind of neat. I like that. But definitely the move over George campaign, I think, will take off. I think it's going to be one of the exciting political movements of the next 10 years. And um, please, anybody, you know, just write into my blog or or contact me by email as to you know how you can contribute to this campaign and what you can do to uh, get uh, Kim's rear end on the dollar bill. Do you, do you have a website that explains more of uh, why people would want to do this to get to get involved? Well, the website I have is just called uh, or blog is just called Dark Ages America, and anybody can reach it by uh, uh, putting uh, morrisberman.com into your browser. But yet, I haven't done it. I mean, we've talked about it. You know, there are a bunch of regulars on the blog, and we've talked about the importance of Kim's rear end. Uh, but we have not, I've not yet put a special section, you know, or posting on, on the campaign. But if enough people, and I'm hoping that's the case, will write in and to say, uh, I too wish to join the Move Over George, uh, you know, movement and uh, get Kim's tushy. Uh, right out there, you know, on billboards and dollar bills and stuff like that, then uh, I may change the whole nature of the blog, you know, instead, right now it's just Dark Ages America, but I can see, you know, I'd, I'm not averse to calling it Kim's Rump, you know, or something like that. I just did a Google search for moveovergeorge.com and it's not taken yet. So I think that there's a future for this website. I'm very excited. Maybe our more rational listeners might be like, that is a terrible idea. Why would you ever want to do something like that? Maybe you could enlighten them as to why it's an important project. I feel that the only way to really understand the importance of getting Kim's rear end on the dollar bill is to actually participate in the movement. I could, you know, give you all kinds of rational reasons here, but these would be abstract intellectualizations. But when you put your shoulder to the wheel, so to speak, and you actually join the movement to make Kim's rear end the icon of our times, your consciousness, again, existence determines consciousness. Once you commit yourself to Kim's rear end, in a certain sense, your head will become Kim's rear end. I'm wondering when when this campaign is going to be launched. I'm excited to, to do a commercial for it. Don't call us. We'll call you. Hey man, let me get a hot dog. I'm hungry over here. Yeah, coming right up. Put some relish and mustard on there. How much is it? Uh, that'll be a one dollar bill. Oh, I got the perfect dollar bill for you right here. Ah, uh, thanks, man. All right, what, what's this crap? You, you trying to give me a fake dollar bill? Turn on your radio and listen to the latest news. How about those Mets? Thanks, man. See ya. We interrupt this regular scheduled program to bring you this important message from the New York Federal Reserve. Due to the challenging economic realities in America today, we realize that most of the world recognizes us as the superior economic power on this planet. We need to demonstrate to them with our physical appearance of the currency that this is a changing reality. We are issuing the brand new Kim Kardashian's ass 
dollar bill. Through a comprehensive study at the New York Federal Reserve, we looked at what was circulating the fastest. Dollars are not circulating fast anymore. Copies of People Magazine are circulating faster. That's why we want the content of People Magazine on our currency. Get it moving faster. Bring the economic recovery. Demonstrate to the world what we care about. So we are issuing this brand new $1 bill with Kim Kardashian's ass on it because it is something that all Americans care about and want to handle. It is a new currency. It is good for all legal tender activities, especially for hot dogs. What the hell? Coming up in six more months, it's the brand new $10 bill. It's Kim Kardashian's pregnant belly. I know what you're thinking. She won't be pregnant forever. That doesn't matter. The UK just issued the brand new pound that has Kate Middleton's pregnant belly on it as well. If they can do it, so can we. Be ready. Be aware. Well, I guess uh, Kim Kardashian's ass is the new currency. Hot dogs! Hot dogs! Visit MoveOverGeorge.com for more information about these important currency adjustments. No, really. The domain is real. You should go to that site. We bought the domain and everything. This is episode number 64 of The Ex-Environmentalist. You're listening to a talk recorded by Justin in Vancouver, British Columbia, with innovative biologist and author Rupert Sheldrake about his new book, The Science Delusion. I'm going to be talking about liberating minds from the science delusion. The science delusion is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. And this is an extremely pervasive belief in the modern world, not just in the West, but we've exported this to the entire world. Science has an enormous prestige everywhere because of the enormous uh, impact and importance of technology and modern medicine in all our lives. And this justly earned prestige uh, uh, and influence uh, makes most people think that the basic beliefs of science must be true. So the science delusion is something not just believed by scientists, but by most other people as well. What I'm arguing is that this is, um, the assumptions on which it's based are extremely questionable. Science as we know it is based on 10 dogmas and these are essentially the dogmas of the materialist philosophy. Um, and it's a belief system. There's, science as a method of inquiry is a wonderfully liberating process through evidence, through hypothesis, through collective discussion. But science has become, for many people, a worldview. And that, I think, is imprisoning science as a system, uh, as, a, as a method of inquiry. Uh, so I think there's a great conflict in the heart of science between this dogmatic belief system and the true spirit of inquiry, which is the lifeblood of science. What I'm going to do first is outline the ten dogmas on which science is based. Um, and then I'll talk briefly about a couple of them and show what happens when you turn these dogmas into questions. What I'm doing is taking the dogmas of science and treating them as scientific hypotheses to be examined scientifically to see how well they stand up to the scientific evidence. The answer is not very well. Um, but the result is that when one questions them, 
new perspectives open up, new lines of inquiry, which I think could regenerate the sciences and make them much more exciting, much more interesting, and much more fun. These are the themes of my book, Science Set Free, which was published uh, last autumn. The de ten delusions start with the first and foremost, nature is mechanical. Nature is like a machine. Everything in nature is like a machine. Animals are machines, plants are machines, and even we are machines. In Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase, lumbering robots with hearts like pumps and brains like computers. Uh, we're essentially mechanisms. In the 17th century, uh, this was the founding assumption on which the scientific revolution was based. And it was a revolution precisely because it rejected the old view of nature, which was taught in all the medieval universities uh, in, uh, and which was the basis of medieval Christian orthodoxy. That belief was that the world is an organism. The, the medieval view is the whole of nature is like an organism. The earth is Mother Earth. The stars are intelligent beings. Uh, the sky is full of intelligence and spirit. Um, animals and plants are not machines. They're true organisms with souls. Plants had souls, the soul of the plant mainly shaping the form of the plant. In Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas' words, the soul was the form of the body. Um, animals also had animal souls uh, organizing their movements, sensitivity, and behavior and instincts. And humans, in addition to the vegetative or plant-like soul that shaped the body, and the animal soul that gave us our instincts and the way our senses and movements are coordinated like those of animals, uh, included also the intellectual or spiritual soul to do with consciousness, thought, and reason, and language. The very word animal comes from the Latin word anima, meaning soul. The 17th century scientific revolution swept all that away and said, no, living organisms are just machines. They have no souls. Nature has no soul. It's just inanimate mechanism. Um, and that's the foundation of the whole of modern science. Very liberating in some ways for the people at the time because uh, it meant that they could think in practical machine-like terms. A great foundation for an industrial civilization and machine-based uh, technologies but not a very good way, it turns out, for understanding life or minds, as I'll show later. The second assumption is that nature is made up of unconscious matter. Matter is unconscious. Matter has no mind, consciousness, spirit, soul. It's just stuff that's pushed around by forces external to it. The third assumption is the total amount of matter and energy in the universe is always the same except at the moment of the Big Bang, when it all suddenly appeared from nowhere. Um, so there's a, that's the principle of conservation of matter and energy. The fourth assumption is the laws of nature are fixed. Uh, they were all exactly the same at the moment of the Big Bang as they are today, and they'll be the same forever. Um, uh, they all suddenly appeared at the moment of the Big Bang, or else they're eternal and existed prior to the Big Bang in some non-material realm. As my friend Terence McKenna used to say, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And, and the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. Um, the fourth uh, assumption, uh, 
where have we got? One, two, three, four. The fifth assumption is that nature is purposeless. Um, the entire universe has no purpose or direction. Evolution is completely purposeless, just blindly uh, going ahead. Um, and animals and plants have no purposes. This isn't something that's been proved to many places of decimals by rigorous experiments. It's simply an assumption that follows from the idea nature is a machine. Machines have no purposes of their own. Therefore, nature has no purpose. Machines only have purposes imposed on them by purposive beings outside them. And in the 17th century, that meant man, angels, and God. Um, so the, uh, you see the difference. A, a, a car has no purpose of its own. When you get into it, as long as it's in working order, it'll go wherever you want it to go. Uh, but if you get on a horse, it might have its own ideas about where it wants to go because it's an organism, not a machine. Um, I discovered this once when I was on a holiday in the west of Ireland and we'd rented these horses and I got on a horse not being an expert horseman. I thought everything was going just fine. This horse was going along, etc. Everything seemed to be going well till I found myself trotting up a lane uh, that led to a stable uh, rather than to the mountains I was supposed to be exploring. Uh, the horse had its own ideas about where it wanted to go. Um, assumption six is that inheritance is material. Living organisms inherit uh, what they inherit through material genes, through epigenetic modifications of the genes, and through cytoplasmic inheritance. It's all material. Uh, assumption seven is that memories are material. They're stored in your brain as material traces. Uh, everything you remember is somewhere inside your head. People have failed to find these traces, uh, but the assumption is they must be there somewhere. And despite a hundred years of trying um, uh, and a hundred years of failure, uh, most people uh, within the scientific world don't for a moment question the possibility that they're there. Uh, where else could they be, they think? Uh, well, memory could work in a very different way, as I'll touch on later this evening. Assumption eight is that the mind is inside the brain. The mind is the brain. Mental activity is brain activity. It's all inside your head. Assumption nine follows from assumption eight. Psychic phenomena are illusory. People think they might have had telepathic experiences or precognitive dreams, but this is just an illusion caused by uh, superstitious beliefs, uh, 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 false interpretation of coincidence, and so forth. Um, and despite all the positive findings of parapsychology and psychical research, uh, all these phenomena are illusory because the mind's in the brain and therefore they're impossible. Um, uh, and dogma 10, um, the final dogma, is that mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. Uh, alternative and complementary therapies may appear to work, um, but that's just because people would have got better anyway or it's all the placebo effect. Uh, the only kind of medicine that can really work is medicine based on physics or chemistry, surgery and drugs. And of course, surgery and drugs do work and all of us have benefited from them in one way or another. Um, but is that the whole picture? Most people don't think so. That's why alternative and complementary medicines flourish. Um, but in the eyes of the official worldview, as taught in most universities and as believed by most governments, uh, these are the only mechanistic medicines, the only kind that really works. In Britain, our Medical Research Council spends nearly a billion pounds a year on medical research, 
Not one penny goes to alternative and complementary medicine because it's all quackery. The only kind that really works is uh, orthodox medicine. Things are beginning to change, fortunately. Um, but essentially, these ten beliefs are the default worldview uh, that comes, as it were, pre-installed in university graduates. This is the, the kind of worldview that's taught in all our universities, either explicitly or implicitly. Um, there are people, dissenting voices here and there, and within the sciences at the leading edges, there are people questioning all these assumptions. Indeed, in many ways, science has broken out of these assumptions. But the fact is, for most people, this remains the scientific worldview. Now, I think it's an extremely constricting worldview and one that gives a false view of ourselves and of nature and one that's increasingly harmful. What I'm going to do now is just take a couple of these assumptions and look at them in more detail. I haven't time to deal with all ten this evening. Um, I discuss all ten, of course, in my book, Science Set Free. Um, but um, what I'll do first is look at the assumption that matters unconscious. This assumption was built into science in the 17th century by the French philosopher René Descartes. He was the person who had the vision of the world as a machine. Um, interestingly, Descartes thought that this vision of the mechanistic worldview was channeled. Uh, he thought it was channeled by the angel of truth uh, in a vision that came to him on November the 10th, 1619. Um, and he thought that the angel of truth was inspired to uh, channel this vision under the aegis of the Black Madonna of Loreto in Italy, Our Lady of Loreto, he went on a pilgrimage three years later to Loreto to pay homage to the Black Madonna. Now, this aspect of the mechanistic worldview is not what you're going to read in the textbooks, but nevertheless, this is how it all originated. Um, it was a kind of channeled vision. Um, and he thought that this vision of the world as a machine elevated the power of God because it made God into the great mechanical designer and machine maker of the world. The previous vision of God was an organic living God of a living world. But this became a mechanistic God like an engineer and mathematician designing and making a mechanical world. Um, and Descartes said that the whole of the machinery of nature, the universe, the planets, the stars, animals and plants, was made up of dead unconscious matter. That closes out the introduction to Rupert Sheldrake's recent talk on the science delusion where he was covering the 10 fundamental beliefs of the scientific materialist paradigm. And you can find the full version of that talk online at soundcloud.com slash extra environmentalist. We're coming across so much content these days that we have to post some of it on our SoundCloud page, and so be sure to follow us, subscribe to the SoundCloud page, where we will post talks and other content on a regular basis. And so, Seth, getting back to all of the things that we discussed with Morris and heard from Rupert, 
it's really fascinating that there was this big revival in the 70s of an idea of holistic thinking and its importance in society. And even though there was a strong grassroots movement of that, even though there were a lot of people like E.F. Schumacher who wrote Small is Beautiful and that revival and birth of uh, an environmental ethic, it really didn't filter into our institutional decision making and it led to what Morris is talking about now where that has really just met so many barriers towards any kind of widespread adoption and for a lot of people they don't even think that way anymore but as our economic system declines and as people can't seek their personal fulfillment in material possessions because of the issues with our global capitalist system they might be able to re-examine their assumptions. Do you think we can really take that bumper sticker of he who dies with the most toys wins and change that around in the mainstream American mindset or in the mindset that we've distributed across the planet? I think the mindset of he who dies with the most toys wins is a very attractive and very addicting mindset. It's easy to fill your pockets. It's easy to fill your soul with bought items from Amazon.com. And I know that I personally am guilty of buying lots of fun gadgets from Amazon.com because it's really convenient and uh, makes me feel good. And there's obviously a lot of power in that. And there's obviously a lot of fulfillment in being able to fill your your everyday life with really cheap and fun and temporary items. Does that really fulfill what it means to be a, a citizen of this planet, of this world? Is, is your everyday existence about the acquisition of items? Is it about buying stuff to make yourself feel happy? Is it about distraction? And that's really what this conversation is about. And to think about these ideas in objective terms and to think about what it is that's making us happy. Is it really that the buying is making us happy? Is it really the idea of more and more and more that's making us happy? Yeah, and that whole concept of the spiritual void at the center of materialism comes up continually on our show in different ways. And I'm glad we were able to get into a bit of the techniques to address that today because there are so many different ways that each person has to find for themselves that they can draw on these rich traditions that exist in order to begin addressing those. But I also think one of the things that excites me about what we discussed with maybe Gar Alperv with Gar Alperovitz and Rick Wolf in some of our recent episodes is that idea of integrating those goals and aims into our work environment as well. Because there's two different schools of thought on this where you want to get rid of work as much as possible. And then I kind of see the opposite view on that is turning your work into a process of fulfillment. It's making sure that your work is actually nourishing your soul. And there's two different ways you can come down on that. But I think the real opportunity in changing the ways that workplaces operate and in developing a craft economy like Morris Berman addressed in his recent talk at UBC on Japan's craft economy and its history and how it relates to sustainability issues is that we can actually start developing a method of work that does nourish our our soul and what it means to be human as opposed to these capitalist extractive methods of work work that produce that feeling of alienation that we have from our other people and even from our own consciousness. And so I feel 
every time that I sit down to work on an episode of The Extra Environmentalist, that it really is not only a tremendous privilege to discuss these ideas and that people will listen to us and respect the kind of media that we're putting out, but it really does get me excited in a soul-nourishing kind of way. You know, we're not doing this because we get paid like a journalist would for the New York Times. We're doing it because... Or paid at all, really. <laughs> yeah, or, or paid at all, except for the random donations that come in, which we're extremely grateful for. But we do it because it is something that does nourish us, because it's something that is our passion. And I think that the real future for so many right livelihoods for careers for people are in those areas. It's working really hard in a way that nourishes you so you don't feel that sort of oppression that you have when you work really hard, like say for a bank for 12 hours a day. Maybe there are some people who really do love that, but I think that their numbers are quite a bit lower than people who do other craft-related industries and really love it as well. Although I'm sure there's examples on both sides. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about how work relates into people's lives. I think work is a very important part of life and not having something that you wake up and do every day that gives you a lot of enjoyment and a lot of pleasure or at least some sort of responsibility of fulfilling some idea of what it means to be a contributing member of society can really be a lacking part in somebody's life. Having a job can give you a lot of identity. It can give you a lot of focus. It can give you a lot of means of of motivation. And most people want that in their lives. Most people look for that. And when they don't have that, it can really leave a person feeling stunted as an individual. And that is evident, obvious. It's very evident when you when somebody who's been working for a really long time loses their job or loses their employment and they're just kind of drifting and they're, and they're not really finding a lot of direction in their life because that job had, has been such an important part of their lives. I talked to one of my coworkers who told me that when he's at work, he's just a totally different person. He is not the real person that he is when he's outside of work. And he goes to work and he goes into this zombie mode and he just kind of disappears for a while. And then he comes out when it's the weekend time or when it's after work and he's the real person again. He becomes real again. And I said, well, what happens when you're at work? What happens during that time when you're in, in work and where do you go? What, what, what happens to the real you? And he says, well, I just disappear. I just kind of go into this little cubicle hole in the wall and I just sit in my computer and I click my mouse and I do what they tell me and then I go home and I become my real person again. And I said, well, doesn't, doesn't that make you feel bad? Doesn't that make you feel less of a person? He says, no, man, this is, this is what I got to do to support my family, to support my kid. This is exactly what I have to do and I'm doing it and this is what, you know, this is what society tells me I have to do so that's why I'm here and, I said, that, wouldn't you like a job where you didn't have to feel that way every day? He's like, sure, but that's not the way it is. And I think that's the way a lot of people feel in their, in their jobs. Having that kind of sequestration of who you really are into, into a job is so much a part of most people's day-to-day reality. And it is an inability to imagine a different way of making a living in the world that keeps us locked into that mindset. And it's so sad to see people graduating from universities who have that mindset of a job and they're just meeting up against this reality where those jobs aren't available. And there's this tension that I think for a lot of people is going to last a really long time to kind of fight through that. And it's really about separating your job from your vocation. 
and the thing that really nourishes your soul that you feel that you have to give to the world. And the more that you can integrate those two, the more integrated you feel as a person. And for a lot of people, it really does take a whole lifetime in order to do that. But it is the challenge that is part of our modern economic reality to integrate those two. And I see encouraging examples of how people do that all the time. But one thing that Rupert was discussing in this excerpt from his talk was the science delusion. That is the idea that science understands the nature of reality in principle completely. And that the materialist views of the world in those 10 points he brought up are the fundamental aspects on which we build everything else. And on our show, we come across how that filters through in economic principles all the time and how it leads to so many problems. But we've exported that idea to the entire world because of the success of our technology, because we can build an Apple computer that truly is a beautiful machine that's in, that's incredible to use, but it is an outgrowth of that viewpoint. And because we can parade that around the world and other people covet it and want it so much, it even further entrenches that idea of the science delusion. And so in some of the news items I wanted to just discuss briefly today, we see so many examples of how that's breaking down as it is exported to the rest of the world. One of the big news stories here in the United States is the bankruptcy of Detroit and how realistically we could have seen that coming for many years now, but for some reason you can say Detroit's going to go bankrupt, Detroit's going to go bankrupt, but then when it finally happens, it's a big news story and suddenly people can actually discuss it. The same thing is with the European countries like Portugal and Spain and Italy and Greece. You can say many times over that they're going to go bankrupt and they're going to default, but until it happens in a few years, no one's going to really discuss it on a broader level. And so the first story I wanted to talk about was this article from the Want China Times, which is a Taiwanese news source that reports on China. And the headline is Detroit clones cropping up around China, which is on all of these fast growing cities that popped up over China, all across China, like Ordos and Wenzhou, that developed rapidly without considering any sort of market and then became ghost towns. And the article is saying that the difference between Detroit and ghost towns in China is that the latter, that the cities in China will never go bankrupt because Beijing will keep bailing them out through policy supports, even though there's so many bankrupt cities in China. And these are the same ghost towns that have been helping to prop China up for the last, what, like 20, 10, 15 years. And a lot of people own these apartments, have bought little apartments in these ghost towns and nobody lives there. These, they're empty. And much like Detroit, they've become these just shells of cities that, that could be. It's a very interesting way to sequester resources away and it's a very interesting way to help to support an economy when it's just basically a shell of a city that no one lives in. I wonder why nobody lives there. I think in many cases, these are these ghost cities that you hear about that are built in China that are part of property speculation. There's another article also in the Want China Times on with the headline, Rapid Urbanization Has Created 12 New Ghost Cities in China. And I think it goes back to this tension that underlies this scientific worldview 
I've read so many books from, you know, the 60s and 70s that say things like objective science is the greatest achievement of our civilization and our civilization is great because no other civilization could have achieved this ability to have objective science observation. But the more you look into that, the more there are so many complexities around the edges that develop. And there's this fundamental tension between that worldview and all the things that it leaves out. And there's also this fundamental tension in the story of rapid urbanization of China and of rapid growth of the urban population. And you see a story like rapid urbanization has created 12 ghost cities in China. And it's about the idea that suddenly everybody in China is going to urbanize and become middle class citizens and part of the consumer economy. Not only can the biosphere not support that, but even just from a purely neoclassical economic standpoint, it doesn't look like these economies are going to be able to do it because of economic costs and because so many people have to be relocated in order to do it. And so the Chinese government has been building all of these urban areas that are just simply abandoned partly for investment, but partly based on what looks like the belief that everybody's going to urbanize, so they have to get ready. And so if China said, we're actually aiming for a steady state economy, or something that had principles of a degrowth economy, that would be truly revolutionary. And we were so fortunate to have Morris Berman here in Vancouver for our New Economy Summit earlier this year, where he gave a talk about Japan's economic history and its craft economy and how it can potentially provide some models when looking at going towards a steady state or uh, degrowth economy. And so that's on our YouTube channel. You can watch that talk. It's already had several thousand views, but it's harder and harder to take the economic reality inside the United States and say to other countries, you should be like us. Uh, another news story that I thought was really fascinating that I came across this week is that falling TVs send a child to the ER every 30 minutes. There are, um, in the article, it says that there's been 125% growth in the number of kids injured by a TV falling on them from 1990 <laughs> to 2011. I mean, isn't that terrible? And oh it's all of these flat screens that tip over and fall on kids. And between 2000 and 2011, 215 children died from injuries caused by falling TVs. I, I would think that those flat screens are a less, lot, lot less heavy than the big CRT monitors, don't you think? Yeah, those well, things are way up massive amount well these yeah your, your children are under five years old and so any sort of weight hitting them it seriously injures them and the flat screen tvs are as you said lighter than the large tube tvs that we used to have but they didn't tip over in the same way that flat tvs do i mean in this article it says a child is dying once every three weeks from a tv tip over and I guess you know? that flat screen TVs now are more ubiquitous than the CRT models used to be. Anyway, more people watch television now. It's kind of, it's one of those tragic stories that you read and you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe we've come to this, that we have these TVs that are just falling on kids and kids and killing them <laughs> constantly. Like, I, I hate to, to laugh at that, but it's terrible that that's our model of what it means to be a, a quote unquote developed country have kids every few weeks dying of TVs falling on them. Well, at least our <laughs> smartphones are getting smaller, so those don't have a risk of falling on children. 
and yeah children them. can eat them and, and choke on them now <laughs> in five more years that'll be this the headline children choking on smartphones <laughs> but there are many people out there who are responsible with their children and their televisions and responsible enough to send us their hard-earned cash to help keep programs like the extra environmentalists a television free show off of your children by listening to the Extra Environmentalist podcast, we will never fall on your children and kill them. If you have an iPod and it falls on your child, your child will simply deflect the iPod and it could perhaps hurt them, but it won't hurt them as much as a giant TV. Unless you decide to watch some of our live streaming videos on a television, which is very possible. And then in that case, we claim no responsibility for the injuries of your children. But furthermore... There have been some fantastic donators to the show in recent history. Tomas from Finland sent us a very generous donation. Really, really appreciate that so much. And I apologize if I, if I said your name wrong. And we also received a donation from Brendan in Burnaby, British Columbia, here in Canada. And so thanks to Brendan here in, in British Columbia for sending us some financial resources to help us continue improving the quality of our shows and also our videos online you can find our recent video interview with jimmy mcmillan of the rent is too damn high party perhaps you have seen him on youtube or going viral on the internet he brings up some really good points about the economic injustices of the modern united states so be sure to get online and watch that i'm going to include a link in the show notes after he finished shooting the economic summit in New York, he was directly outside the building. We walked two feet down the street, and who did we see but Jimmy McMillan with his rent is too damn high sign, uh, music blaring, beard looking impeccable, talking to the people, telling them the rent is indeed too damn high. So we had no choice but to break out our cameras and do an interview on the street. It was a pretty fantastic situation. Check out the video, share it with your friends, and all of our video live streaming coverage of the New Economics Institute rewrote convergence in discussing these elements of a new economy can be found online at the YouTube account for the New Economics Institute. I'm going to include a link in the show notes, but it's youtube.com slash EFS Society. That's right. And all of the extra environmentalist podcasts, a whole library full of Justin and I talking at length to fantastic authors and film directors and intellectuals of our time can be found at extraenvironmentalist.com. We have 63 back episodes. If you're listening to 64 here, we have 63 back episodes for you to listen and enjoy all free of charge, all available on iTunes. You can check us out on SoundCloud, find us on Stitcher Radio, like us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, write us an email on our email address, which is podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com and find us on Vimeo and YouTube as well. One of our recent listeners was grappling with the challenges of epistemological superiority and claims and left us this voicemail. It's nice to know that we have such dedicated listeners who even in the throws of their unease with society, they are able to dial phone numbers and leave us their feedback on our voicemail. Thank you so much to that, to that listener out there who felt comfortable enough with us to share his feelings. It's important to share that 
kind of release with the world and with other people. Ancient societies and many traditional cultures had group emotional releases that we lack in our society today. And I think that that classifies as one of my favorite voicemails I've ever received. Undoubtedly my favorite voicemail. (laughs) Uh, We've had some great voicemails in the past, but nobody has really ever come in and just screamed at us for a full minute. It's it's just fantastic. Thank you so much. I think it really just sums up the first 30 episodes of our podcast, you know, like just play that. I missed the first 30 episodes. Let me give you a summary. (laughs) No doubt. um, The first, uh, you know, first 50 episodes are probably summed up that way. But thank you so much for that, that anonymous voicemail, whoever you are out there. We really appreciate your fervor and dedication to making the extra environmentalist a show that we all can be proud of. And also just your ability to to breathe, um, you know, and keep that going for so long. I, I really appreciate those vocal talents. I mean, perhaps you are a scuba diver or something. That's really yeah. Cool. I did notice that. I mean, he's pr- definitely practiced that scream. I'd say thousands of times, if not millions. Um, of yeah. dedication to that kind of art is is something that we all can respect and admire. You can find an interview with us on a recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast with our longtime friend and inspiration KMO. When Seth and I were in New York at this new Economics Institute reroute convergence, we stopped by KMO and Olga's lovely place in Brooklyn to record an interview. And you're going to hear, I believe for the first time ever, all three of us on high-quality audio equipment that is right Justin and i do use some fancy audio equipment but we have not been in person before in the same room with another podcaster who is interviewing us using that high quality gear and it is in fact an incredible experience so if you've not heard of the sea realm podcast go over to KMO's site and check out the fantastic collection of audio work that he has put out and has been putting out for i'd say what like five or six years now it's great stuff yeah I mean, it's incredible and was a huge inspiration to us to make podcasts and to start creating podcasts. And thanks again to everybody who donated and also thanks to everybody who is sending us news links and information through our Facebook page or through comments. One news article that Robin sent in recently was through the New York Times, a story on our coming food crisis, and it just talks about the issues of the population out west and how meeting their food needs is becoming an increasing challenge with spiking temperatures and climate change. And if you look at the trends over time, it is very disconcerting that if the global temperature rises increase, which we have every reason to believe that they will, then these areas are that are quickly desertifying will also have to have population shifts that could be on quite large scales. And so it's interesting to see these kinds of discussions filtering up into media outlets like the New York Times. So thanks for sharing that, Robin, and I'm going to include a link to it in the show notes. And also thanks to Zach, who left a comment on episode number 63, contrasting the interview with Gar with Rick Wolf, where Gar was talking about the change in economic structure for 40 years, and Rick Rick Wolf was talking about a major shift starting and a revolution starting in 2013. You know, who's right in that scenario? He was saying that maybe Gar's working out an anarchist vision in 40 years' time, while Wolf is looking at a more classic Marx-inspired worker takeover 
starting in the short term because as Zach is pointing out, how hard is it for millions of people to collectively assert their will and seize control of production? You know, maybe a single tweet could even do that. Or if enough networks are organized, like that many people could rise up and do it. But how easy is it for these associated networked anarchist like producers to overcome the dictates of the market and build a voluntary economy with an equal society based on the principles of solidarity across local communities can't happen in an instant, even though it is possible. So thanks for that cogent analysis, Zach. Thanks, Zach. That was really good. We've also been seeing our stickers popping up around the world. We did send out about 200 stickers all over the world to about 12 different countries. So if you've just received your sticker in the mail and you are thinking about a place to put it, consider putting it on something that you really care about, like your grandmother, I mean, your computer or your cell phone or a child's water bottle, which we saw that Betty put on her, her young daughter's water bottle. Um, these stickers are make fantastic uh, backings on your laptop and look really good on your favorite books. I've even seen one on a coffee maker. So feel free to send us in a picture of your sticker on something fantastic, and we would love to put it up on our website. And we're creating an album, and we'd love to have yours to be a part of it. Thank you so much. Also, any donation over $35 gets you a t-shirt and any donation over $15 gets you the stickers I just talked about. Absolutely. And all those donations go into improving our audio quality and our video quality, which you're going to be be seeing a lot more video from us in the near future. Our correspondent, Kevin, who put together those amazing permaculture episodes, is going back to the 2013 permaculture convergence this year in Portland, Oregon, which is this coming weekend, the first weekend in August. And he's going to be no longer focusing on audio. He's focusing on shooting some video interviews that could become something pretty cool in the near future. So we'll have more to say about that. Kevin makes such a large part of these episodes possible through his amazing editing skills. We are extremely grateful to him and to Chris, who helps us out on our website, and to Louisa, who did some excellent blog recap articles on the reroute convergence in New York. That's absolutely right, Justin. We couldn't do it without the team members of the Extra Environmentalist and our fantastic listeners as well. So thank you so much for being a part of this amazing experiment that is the extra environmentalist so brave those extreme heat waves pick your tomatoes and enjoy sitting in hammocks in the shade
What I mean by a hard swallow is a place where the argument cannot hide the fact that there's something slightly fishy about it. The hard swallow built into science is this business about the Big Bang. Now let's give this a little attention here. This is the notion that the universe, for no reason, sprang from nothing in a single instant. Well, now before we dissect this, notion, now notice that this is the limit test for credulity. Whether you believe this or not, notice that it is not possible to conceive of something more unlikely or less likely to be believed. I mean, I defy anyone. It's just the limit case for unlikelihood that the universe would spring from nothing in a single instant for no reason. I mean, if you believe that, my family has a bridge across the Hudson River that will give you a lease option for five dollars. Uh, it, it makes no sense. It is, in fact, no different than saying, and God said, let there be light. And what the philosophers of science are saying is, give us one free miracle, and we will roll from that point forward, from the birth of time to the crack of doom, just one free miracle. And then it will all unravel according to natural law and these bizarre equations which nobody can understand but which are so holy in this enterprise. Well, I say then, if science gets one free miracle, then everybody gets one free miracle. And I perceive that it is true when you build these large-scale cosmogonic theories that you have to have a kind of an umbilical cord or a, or a point to start from that is different from all other points in the system. I've got hands, can I in my head? And he brought along a pack of machine out Sing to me how I'm tripping from the glass ray of the human condition. And I've got strands of DNA. We've got nothing but time. We've got nothing but On the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, later this August, we celebrate three years of The Extra Environmentalist and discuss a regenerative idea for our human species with permaculture designer and documentary filmmaker John Liu. We have to talk about what is the meaning of life. The meaning of life is not to go shopping. The meaning of life is not to surround yourself with material things. And... People know that intrinsically in indigenous communities around the world. But the global economy has been imposed on them. They've had no choice. Armies came and told them, this is it. You have to do this. 
you know, and it's corrupting of the people who participate in, in those systems. But now we just have to look at it and in a way, not so much about judgment or blame, but about survival. We're not talking about sustainability, really. We're talking about survival. So, you know, if we want to survive, we will have to be sustainable. And to be sustainable, we will have to have functional ecosystems. And if we have functional ecosystems, then we will have clean air, clean water, fertile soils, and equality. Future is ours to see Bigger times stay with me Take my heart, take my hand We'll explore the promised land We've got nothing but time war We've got nothing but time war We've got nothing but time war Nothing but Here lies Mr. Marcus Radcliffe, owner of three cell phones, 12 email accounts, 1,500 Facebook friends, and 17,000 Twitter posts. He dies with one of the most active social media lives that anyone can imagine. This man never put his cell phone down. He was constantly in contact with the world, but never left his home. His computer screens were always lit, but he will go down in history as a man with a cell phone permanently attached to his hand. So far in advance has he buffered his tweets and Vine posts that his lovely widow, who barely got to see him because he spent most of his time in a dark room by himself, will be able to view his posts on various social media for years to come. Each year on the Christmas episode of Oprah, she gives away bigger and better, infinitely progressing things. You have no idea what she's going to give out this year. Tune in to see what Oprah's giving out to everybody on this year's Christmas episode. Oprah's sick this year on this Christmas special of the Oprah show. Instead, I'm Alex Jones's mother sitting in for Oprah. Don't worry, folks. The gifts are going to be real good this year. Now the moment everyone's been waiting for. We've given away more than $300,000 in free gifts this year so far. And now for every audience member's favorite time, the personal gift to every audience member. <laughs> All right, now everybody look under their seats for this year's gift. That's right, folks. 
This year, we are giving away one free miracle to every audience member. You get a free miracle. You get a free miracle. And you, you get a free miracle too. <laughs> Hold on, mother. What are you doing here? I thought you told me I got a free miracle. I'm giving away free miracles to everybody, Alex. It's so wonderful. And the Christmas spirit has just rained down upon us all. What do you mean, Mother? Now everybody's going to wish for all kinds of crazy stuff. And you get a free miracle. Even you get a free miracle, Alex. Maybe I'll give you two because I love you. Oh, wow. Thanks, Mother. This completely changes my view of the world. I know what I want. I want a giant bunker filled with gold. Yes, finally, my miracle's been realized. Thank you for sitting in for Oprah, Mother. And you get a miracle, and you get a miracle, and you get a miracle. We interrupt this Christmas episode of Oprah to let you know that ridiculous things are happening all over the planet. Elephants are appearing in water parks. There's snow falling inside the Eiffel Tower. Gravity has been suspended in certain parts of China. And oh my god, Peter Pan is standing right in front of me. It appears that every Disney character has become real. I had no idea that Snow White would be that hot in person. But just as a final update, it appears that news is no longer necessary because one husband's miracle was that his wife's boobs are so large the planet has now left its gravitational route around the sun and, is, and we are now plunging towards the deep hot center of the sun. Before our impending heat death, I'm going to go introduce myself to Snow White. Signing off for now, this is John Graceman. And hello, Snow White. Next up, entertainment this night. On tonight's entertainment this evening, we discuss the latest Kim Kardashian pregnancy photos. Oh my god, why is it getting so hot here? Wait, it's so bright! Ah!